0: We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. Let's open up our Bibles tonight to 1 Chronicles chapter 8. Today I heard a story Pastor Adrian Rogers was sharing on the radio about uh, a long time ago when he was at the airport. He said it was during the Vietnam War. And he said that when he was there, uh, he was just watching people. It was when our boys were there fighting in Vietnam. And he said that he saw a soldier there, um, looked like a football player, looked like a movie star. He had just a, a look about him that was admirable, that he was fixated on this guy He was there, uh, obviously, with his parents. He was there with his wife. He was there with his little children. And uh, Adrian Rogers, just kind of watching him, uh, knowing that he was going to be on the same flight, was wondering, as this guy is about to go into battle, does he know Jesus Christ? And so he offered up a prayer. He said, Lord, if it's your will, I pray that I could sit by this young man. And sure enough, God answered his prayer, and he ended up sitting next to him. And he was talking to him you know, and asking him, are you going to the front. He said, Yeah, I'm going to the front. Do you think you'll see combat? Yes, I, I think I'll see combat. And then he asked him that question. He said, Well, young man, he didn't tell me he was a pastor, but he just said, Do you do you have that assurance that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? And he said, the young man said, Absolutely, sir. He didn't know Adrian Rogers was a pastor, but he said, I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have repented of my sins. And I have him in my heart. And I know for a fact that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. And so Adrian Rogers was looking at him and thinking and wondering. I wonder what's going on in his heart. He wanted to offer words of comfort. And he asked him, he says, well, well, how do you feel if God were to take you home, if you were to die young? And then he said that the young man then looked at him as if to give him a lesson. And he said, God is good. And God has been good to me all my life. And I might die, but if I die, let me tell you something that I have learned in my short life, that life is not lived in length. Life is lived in depth. And here was this young guy teaching this old pastor a lesson in life. And it's a lesson that I pray we would know to the deepest recesses of our hearts. You know, one of the things we're going to see today You know, is the tragedy of Saul. You know, the greatest tragedy of all is not living a short life, it's living a shallow life. And that's what Saul ended up living. Such is the case for the first king of Israel. And here's a man, when you look at him, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But here's a man with so much potential, and he threw it away. And therefore, he himself was swept away. We're going to see this evening the bulk of our Bible study is found as a fulfillment of God's promise through Samuel. Back in 1 Samuel 12, maybe you remember the passage in verse 24 and 25, when God presented the options to the one of coronation as well as the entire nation, this is what Samuel said. He said, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. There's option A. Serve the Lord in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. See, that's option A. But then option B, Samuel said, For consider what great things He has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You see, there's really only two options in life. Either to serve truthfully or to do wickedly, to choose to be hot or to choose to be cold, to choose to be in or out, right or wrong, lost or found. There is no middle ground. We have to choose that type of heart. Tragically, we see in the nation of Israel the people didn't listen to the Word of God through the prophet of God, and they eventually had to face the day when they were swept away. And that happens to people in the pews just like us. And that's why you have to really you know we have to really examine ourselves. What direction are we walking on? I always tell people, as long as you're going in the right direction, over time, you're going to be in a good place. But we have to make sure you guys that that's where we are. And we're going to see that today in First Chronicles eight. We'll see it through a man. We'll see it through a nation. We'll see it in chapter nine and 10. And again, it's been kind of difficult going through Chronicles for me. Um, It's kind of funny, you guys. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, I think only maybe one person noticed. But I did the first week. I did chapters 1 through 4. And then I did 5 through 8. Then the third week, I forgot I did 5 through (laughs) 8. I went back and I did 6. Nobody noticed (laughs) except for one person. And then uh, today, we're going to go through 8 through 10. And so anyways, I don't know. Here we are. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, Now Benjamin begot Bela his firstborn, Ashbel the second, Ahara the third, Anoha the fourth, and Rafa the fifth. And the sons of Bela were Adar, Gera, Abuhud, Abishua, Naaman, Ehoah, Gera, Sufufan, and Haram. And I just want to read those to you just to prove to you that I could read those words, okay? <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced them right, but we can get through it, right? You know, in 1 Chronicles 8, we have the chapter of the lineage of King Saul, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul came from Benjamin. It's interesting, if you go down to verse 6, you'll see that these are the sons of Ehud who were the heads of the father's houses of the inhabitants of Geba and who forced them, interesting, forced them to move to Manahath. If you go down to verse 12, we read the sons of Elpael who built the cities of Ona and Lod with its towns. And if you go down to verse 13, we read about Bereiah and Shema, who were the heads of their father's houses. Notice this. This is important. Who drove out the inhabitants of Gath, one of the five royal or chief cities of the Philistines. You guys remember who was from Gath? A big guy. Goliath, right? And so it's kind of impressive, really, that what we're reading right here regarding the uh, descendants or the ancestors of Saul. We read some pretty good things. It's kind of giving us the idea that there's potential in this tribe. You know, Oswald Chambers said this. He said, there is a potential hero in every man. Especially if you're a Christian. Why? Because God lives in you, right? But unfortunately, we're going to see the selected son of Benjamin and even the nation of Judah did not live up to its potential. And as we move to chapter 9, we come to that heavy and heartbreaking passage. Look at verse 1. It says, So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness. Because of their unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness caused God's people to be carried away into captivity. It brought God's people into bondage. It took them out of the place where they belonged. It took them out of the land that the Lord had given them. Unfaithfulness caused these things to God's people. The Hebrew word right here translated unfaithfulness is interesting. It's usually translated to trespass or transgression. And therefore, it denotes a faithful transgression, equating, really, when you put it together, in an unfaithfulness to God. You see, the Bible teaches that even the saved, you know, even the saints, we all stumble, we all sin, right? But there's a difference. We should not trespass, we should not transgress. There are certain lines that we should not cross. When we go into sin with eyes wide open or we persist in unfaithfulness, uh, if we persist in those types of things, then what ends up happening is this. We warrant, we welcome, we invite God's discipline upon our lives. It's not necessarily from the very get-go that God's going to say, okay, I don't want you anymore. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the fact that if we persist in sin, God will discipline us as his children. And here we read that because of their unfaithfulness, Judah, the people of God, were carried away captive. How about us? How about us? Sometimes when we're living in sin, you where know, there's strife in the house, we're not really treating our wife right, or our husband right, or our kids right, we're not praying the way that we should. Don't you know that God will discipline us for that? And to different degrees, obviously. Sometimes he will withhold the reward that he wanted to give you. And all I'm saying, and I think all that God is saying to us, is I don't want that for your life. I have so much for you. I will blow you away exceedingly, abundantly above what you would ever think or imagine. All you have to do is obey. Now we stumble from time to time and we sin, but we do not persist in unfaithfulness. We do not transgress. We do not go into eyes and sin presumptuously and expect God to bless us our life he can't cuz he's a holy god and that's what we see happen to the nation of Israel really it's a warning to us as a whole and it's interesting how this you know evening we're going to see the same lesson taught later not just to a nation but even to individuals i want to fast forward if you would please go over to chapter 10 and look at verse 13. First Chronicles 10.13, it says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which we had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for his guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him, and turned the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. Now, we'll elaborate later on the specifics mentioned here in Saul's life, but for now, I just wanted to read that reality. And we see the summary. is the same as that of Judah. One word, unfaithfulness. Now, it's the only two times that word is used in Chronicles. And God is definitely pointing this out to us. You see, God had repeated and specifically warned His people through, uh, for example, Ezekiel. You read in chapter 15, verse 8, God said, Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness says the Lord God and when you study Ezekiel and you look at the different sieges that the Babylonians uh did against Jerusalem you know this could have been prevented Ezekiel was prophesying to them telling them be careful if you continue in sin God's going to judge in a way that you would never even begin to imagine but they wouldn't listen to Ezekiel They wouldn't receive the warnings. They would not simply believe in the holiness of God. Of course, God had warned them earlier in Leviticus 26 that unfaithfulness would bring his hand of discipline upon their lives. And so if I flip it over, all I'm saying is this. What's God saying of us? I want you to be a faithful people. I want you to be consistent. I want you to make sure that there are certain lines you don't cross, and you listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when He's telling you not to do that. Don't go that way. Or if He's telling you to do something, respond to the Lord. Become a people uh, that the Bible talks about walking properly. That's all God is asking of us. But here's the thing, you know, God presents His holiness, and you know He had taught them and shown them so much grace in the Scriptures. And he had repeatedly spoken to his people in his word that, you know, here's the thing, you guys. Because maybe you're here tonight and you're like, oh, no, man, he's beating me up. I'm trying not to. Maybe if the Bible beats you up, that's okay, right? But, you know, um, maybe you're here tonight and you have blown it. Well, that's why we're here. We are here for a new beginning. We are here for God's grace over our life. We are here to make a, a change, a transition. We are here to experience the power of God in our life. That's why we're here. We are here today and the Bible says that if we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, then he's going to forgive us of our sins. You know, he promised the people as a whole in Leviticus 26:40 that very thing. He says if you confess your sins, repent of your unfaithfulness, and I'll bless you. And he promised the individual the same thing in Numbers chapter 5 verse 6. You know, as a matter of fact, speaking of unfaithfulness, we got to love what we read in First John chapter 1, verse 9. When we flip it over, notice what it says. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, when you come to the Lord and maybe you've been blowing it, God is just saying all you have to do is confess your sin. And what does that mean? Does that mean you just simply say it? No. It means that you acknowledge your sin It means you turn from your sin. If restitution is required, then offer restitution. If you need to confess it to a person, then confess it to a person. But you deal with the sin. And when you do, when you confess it in that way, God says, I will be faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe there are some here today you just can't go forward because you have not dealt with the sin in your life. And maybe you say you're sorry and you are for God lip service. Let me tell you, that's not confession, that's not repentance, that's not adequate. If you want God to move in our life, then we have to confess our sins. You know, remember that promise, you guys. When you blow it, just run to Jesus. He will forgive you and he will give you a second chance. We need to remember his grace. But we also need to remember the warnings in the Bible as well. For example, Proverbs 28.13, it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will have mercy. You know, And here's the thing that we're going to go forward in this, but when I was really thinking about this, I'm like, Lord, what do we do as a church? And you know what we're doing is we're learning who God is. We're learning how God is. There are some people on this side, it's all grace, it's all grace. And they just continue in sin that grace may abound. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 talks about those people. But see, we can't be that way. We are not lo- like that. And then there's others over here where it's just there's no grace. You know, it's just all me, legalistic, rules and regulations without re- relationship. And it almost seems like there's no forgiveness. But what I find and what we need to to discover and what I want to present to you is a God of beautiful biblical balance. He is a God of holiness and He is a God of grace. And when you understand that, then you will run through the fields of forgiveness with the freedom to obey Him the way that you should with a heart of love. You know that's the way the Lord, uh, He revealed Himself uh, to Moses. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, And the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, you know, the Lord when he's revealing himself to Moses, Moses said, "Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to really see you. I want to find out, you know, who you are." And the Lord, you know, he tucks him in the cleft of the rock, and then he 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 walks by him, so to speak. He allows Moses yes to see his afterglow, but the main thing is the revelation of his word as far as who he is. And and he says, "I'm, I'm a God who will forgive you of your sins, right? But he doesn't end there. He goes on and he says in the same passage, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation by no means clearing the guilty. You see, he's the God of heaven, but he's also the God of hell. He's the God of grace, but he's also the God of holiness. He's the God who will wash away our sins, but if we don't repent of them, then he will deal with us in our sins. And that's why we got to get right. When we read these stories of a nation being carried away into captivity because of their faithful unfaithfulness, when we read the story of Saul, To me, Saul is really a loud message to all of us who I believe tonight have so much potential, and I pray that we would realize the potential that we have. Saul is one of the clearest biblical examples of a man that was not balanced. He was a clear example of how not to follow the Lord. If you want to see how not to do it, Look at Saul. And sometimes we need those negative examples. Huh? Sometimes we need that. For example, you know, if I wanted you to to eat a healthy diet, I would tell you to eat, um, you know, green uh, food like vegetables and peas and all that kind of stuff. Maybe have your bananas and avocados and stuff like that, right? You eat the good food. But I would also tell you don't eat certain foods, right? Like the cheeseburgers and the pizza and the greasy things, right? Like I like to have all those potato chips or whatever, man. You know, the other day I saw someone get a big old scoop of mayonnaise and I'm like, oh, you shouldn't eat that. I know you guys like mayonnaise, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It's kind of like that's how it is. The, we, need, we need negative examples. Don't do that. Don't do it like that. But, but we also need positive examples. And Saul is the negative example for us. And who's the positive example? Jesus, also David. Right, And we see that. We learn from these guys. Now, back in Chronicles, this chapter in Chronicles, it points out the people who lived in Jerusalem after Judah was judged because of their unfaithfulness. And, and he mentions some tribes there in verse 3, if you would. Look at First Chronicles 9, verse 3. Now in Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and the children of Ephraim, and Manasseh. And so he's mentioning individuals that live in Jerusalem. He's mentioning here the four tribes, right? And then he goes on to mention some of the leading men who were numbered. And notice in verse 9 their description. It says all these men were heads of a father's house. In their father's houses, there were 956, right? And then we read right here, and we've spoken repeatedly about the fact that Chronicles is written from a priestly perspective. And so we have next the priests at Jerusalem in verses 10 through 13. I I like the way they're described right there again. If you'll notice in verse 13, it says, um, And their brethren, heads of their fathers' houses, 1,760 notice they were very able men for the work of the service of the house of god i like that huh it's kind of cool when you when you look at that and you see these priests you know they're able men now of course and i want to share this with you because i think it's important for us to know none of us here are worthy none of us here are able on our own strength, on our own righteousness, amen? None of us here. But we are enabled when we are in Christ. We are enabled when we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work through our life. And that's a testimony that we have right here, right? We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me why? Because he counted me faithful. Interesting. Putting me into the ministry. See, what is God looking for? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Moreover, it is required as stewards that one be found faithful. See, the lesson tonight? Not unfaithfulness. Faithfulness. And when you're faithful and you just show up, God says, I will give you the ability that you need to do the work that I've called you to do. Just be willing and be faithful and watch how God will make you able. And there you are, whatever ministry you're involved in and whatever people you're trying to minister to, God will give you the supernatural strength. Uh, first, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Do you guys know that verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Very important. And looking at this right here, we move from the priests to the Levites at Jerusalem in verses 14 through 16. Remember the priests, they're the descendants of Aaron, the Levites, they're the guys with Levites, right? No, I'm just joking. The Levites are the descendants of the tribe of Levi. They were the helpers for the priests, right? And then the chronicler spends a lot of time on the Levite gatekeepers in verses 17 all the way to Verse 27. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied the gatekeepers. Have you guys ever studied the gatekeepers? It's a fascinating study. We don't really have time to get too far into it. But, you know, there were guys on the east on the west on the north and the south, and they had guys helping them out, and they were watchmen. They were watchmen on the walls. There were watchmen on the gates who would not let anything in that couldn't go in, that shouldn't go in. They wouldn't let anything out that... That, that shouldn't go out. They were even the gatekeepers were even keepers over the doors in the temple. You know, and it, it kind of reminds me of what happened recently. You guys probably heard about the White House breach, how this guy, I am not sure exactly how he got into the you know the White House and there he is running across the lawn. He must have been a fast runner, I'm not sure, but he goes in there and he and he and he and he gets in the house, the White House, he finds the door unlocked. you guys remember that? And he gets past this girl security guard. I don't know what a girl security guard is doing there in the first place. No offense, ladies. You're smarter than us, but you're not stronger than us usually. So, you know, but to me, and then, you know, he goes and finally somebody tackles him. But what happened? Somebody messed up. They didn't have very good gatekeepers, huh? That's what a gatekeeper is. There are gatekeepers in the temple of God. There are gatekeepers in this church. And that's what we need. We need people to protect. Nothing should come in. And we see God has this responsibility given to these guys. In one sense, they're like spiritual security guards. And you see a wolf. And you're like, hey. you know," And you tell somebody, I don't know about that guy. Or whatever. Things are going on. See, this is what we see in the temple. And I believe it's something that we see even in the church. If you go over to John chapter 10, and you have an English standard version of the Bible, ESV, which is a good translation, it uses the word gatekeeper in the flocks of God. And so it's interesting, you know, in looking at this right here, even at verse 22, notice it says, all those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They twelve. They're recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer had appointed them, notice, to their trusted office. They were chosen. They were appointed to a place of trust. They had a leader named Shalom in verse 17. They had experience. Look at verse 18, if you would, in this chapter. Until then, they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. They had a rich history in gatekeeping. If you look at verses 19 and 20, it says, Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, the gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keeping, keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, had been the officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Those of you here, and some of you here, you know you who you are. And in one sense, we all are gatekeepers. You are all eyes. If you see something that's not right, you know you let us know. And then we're in good company. We're with that guy Phinehas. We're in a trusted office. It's an important place for us to be responsible in. When you look at this chapter right here, you see verses 28 through 34 describe other Levitical duties. Like, for example, uh, how many of you here like washing dishes? Out of curiosity. Some of you like it. You go home and wash those dishes, right? I mean, they had the guys washing dishes, uh, serving vessels, furnishings, implements of the sanctuary, a fine flour, uh, putting together the incense and the ointment, even baking bread. They have individuals that were delegated to that. How many of you here like to bake out of curiosity? Hopefully you'll bless us with some of that. And they even had individuals baking the showbread, the singers we've talked about already, what do we see there? You know what we see? We see the way that God and his church has all the different responsibilities high in the church. And we have the truth of teamwork taught to us. Truths that transfer to the church, right? There's no way I could do what I get to do. There's no way I could, you know, pray and study my Bible or whatever, do counseling or teach were it not for every single person in the church, and when some people steps out of ministry, and you know, there's a vacuum there. You can talk to Henry, man. There is a need for servants. There really is. We need people that to, to usher, and people to serve in the children's ministry, and people to do PowerPoint and things like that. And so, every single office, sacred, appointed, anointed by God, we see that picture there. As a matter of fact, we have that picture in the New Testament as well. I was wondering if you can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And even if all you do is pray, I want you to know that is so huge. I want you to know that. But you know, we all have different gifts, right? And we read here in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, uh, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. I-, I want you guys to know about spiritual gifts. I want you to know about how the body operates. Right? And so if you go down to verse 4, he says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And so he kind of shares there it's still the Lord, even though there's a variety, even though there's a diversity, there is a unity here, right? It doesn't matter where you are in the body. But a lot of times what ends up happening is people they get, you know, caught up in that position stuff. And and that's where Paul is trying to say, I want you guys to know that, you know, the the important parts of the body are not always the presentable parts. For example When you look at a body right here, what what do you think is the most important part? Some might say, well, it's the hand or it's, I don't know, the head or or the chest or legs. I don't know. But what about the heart? What about the heart? You don't see the heart, but you can't live without a heart. There are people in this church that no one has ever heard of or no one has ever seen. We couldn't live without them. We couldn't live without these ladies praying on Wednesday. You don't know who goes to the prayer meetings, but I do. I see the list every week. We could not survive. They've been praying for us since the very beginning when, when we used to meet in the garage. And I was there when these guys. We have these little prayer meeting. You don't know the handful of guys that get together on Saturday morning. And I'm firmly convinced that we could not live without them. And all the different parts of the body... Some you see, some you don't. It doesn't even matter. All that matters is that you find out where you belong and you do that faithfully. That's all that matters. As a matter of fact, he talks later in verse 11 of this chapter. And notice it says right here, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing each to each one individually as he wills. You See, it's not many or the pastors or the leaders that are putting people where they belong. It's the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe that, then you believe that man is stronger than the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that man is stronger than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will put people where he wants them to be. See, that's what he says right here. And he distributes the gifts. In verse 12 it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many, Are one body, uh, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And so if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And rhetorical question, the answer is no. And and if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. It's interesting. He goes on to say, And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed they are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, here it is. Much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty but our presentable parts have no need. See, God has given us a church with different people, different types of people. I love the variety that we have. I love even the variety of gifts and callings. And you know what we need to do, however, is to find our place in the body. And you might be washing dishes, or or you might be preaching, or you might be vacuuming, or you might be scrubbing toilets, or you might be taking care of the toddlers, or you might be in the prayer ministry. But, you know, find your place in the body. And maybe, perhaps, maybe it won't be signed up for Calvary Chapel Almani. But I will say this, because one day you will stand before God. You better find your place. I want to encourage you. I exhort you. I urge you to do something with the gifts and talents that God has given to you. Because when you look at the temple, and you look at all these different Levites and priests and different individuals, what we find is that together, we will bring. When we're all faithful to our different responsibilities, we're going to bring glory to God. And so, um, back in First Chronicles chapter nine, in verse thirty-five through forty-four, we return to the family of King Saul. And you guys know he's the first king of Israel whose tragic end we read about next. Uh, Because look at chapter 10. And we read in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan. And that just breaks my heart. You know, earlier we read about how the Lord reveals Himself. Remember we read about the God who's forgiving and gracious and compassionate and slow to get anger. But then remember we read there about how when God revealed Himself, He does not clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities upon the following generations. And you're like, well, what does that mean? And that means that if I mess up and I go off track, then that's going to infect my kids. That's going to affect the rest of the people. That's what he's saying there. And you see, that's what ended up happening to Saul. And then his beautiful son, Jonathan, died. And then we read about Abinadab and Melchishua Saul's other sons. In verse 3, And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all the house, all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, They forsook their cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. I don't know if you guys remember when the Lord chose Saul. You know, remember him? He was head and shoulders above the rest. Do you remember Saul? When you study the Bible, you find he had a good beginning. He had a good beginning. And here we read this. It's so sad to see the tragedy. There's no doubt in my mind that Saul was selected by the Lord. He was clearly God-guided Samuel. It was supernatural when Saul was selected by the Lord. And there's no doubt in my mind that he was given the opportunity to be a blessing of a king. There's no doubt in my mind the potential in his life. But Saul, we see, and now we read... um, He's basically the poster boy for unfaithfulness. He always had excuses. That's one of the things you read about Saul is he never, he never you know, just confessed it. He never, like David did, said, you know, I have sinned. He'd always blame it on other people, right? For his sin. Well, they did this or they wanted that. He even blamed it on the people that he himself was called to lead Never do that. Never blame it on the people that you're called to lead. He never admitted his sin. He always had reasons for it. And he never really repented, even though he said the right words a few times. You know, you can say you're sorry, it doesn't mean that you've repented of your sins. Oh, David, yes, you're the one. And I know, you know, you're more righteous than me. And I'm all messed up, and then the next day he goes looking for him again, you know? Are we like that? Are you like that? Are you like that with the Lord? When he shows you a sin in your life, what do you do with it? Do you keep doing it over and over and over and over again? Then maybe you need to take that lesson and learn it from the life of Saul. Now Saul eventually lost his anointing. He was disqualified. His crown was then given to David. And the sad thing we see about Saul's life is that he was tormented with an evil spirit for the rest of his life. A life with so much promise and potential ending in defeat and absolute disgrace. Because he just thought, well, I'll be okay. And God said, no, you're not. And one person wrote this. um, Wake for shame, my sluggish heart. Wake and gladly sing thy part. Learn like birds and springs and flowers how to use God's mighty powers. You know, because when it's the Lord, you know, we can win this battle against sin. We have to guard ourselves. From repeating this fall of Saul, and, and when you read the fall of Saul, you can have the whole story in Second Samuel chapter one, verses one through sixteen. And I, I don't want to take up too much time going there, but if you guys remember, what had happened was uh, this guy came to David's camp, and he had the crown, and he had the crown that of of Saul. And so you know, David's like, well, what happened? And and so this guy who happened to be an Amalekite, he told David, well, you know, Saul was there. He was suffering. He was obviously not going to make it. And so I put him out of his misery. I, I killed him. And I brought you the crown, right? And so when you put the stories together, what you find is that Saul got hit with the archers. He, you know, he he, he thought, he, he knew he was going to die. So he asked his armor bearer to kill him, armor bearer. Was a good armor bearer. He didn't do it. And so Saul, you know, fell on the sword himself. But apparently, what happened was he still wasn't dead. And so the Amalekite comes. And in the end of the day, Saul gets killed by an Amalekite. Now, in closing here, we're going to see two ironies that are so, so huge. They're lessons for us to live and to learn from in looking at the life of Saul. you know, Pastor Chuck, he said this. He said, God ordered Saul to utterly destroy Amalek, but he failed to do so. And that was back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God said, I want you to utterly destroy them. But he didn't. You guys remember what happened? He blamed it on the people, all these people, man. They wanted to kind of keep the best of the sheep, and there's King Agag, and he didn't kill The Amalekites. God told him to kill the Amalekites and He let them live. Right? He did an incomplete obedience. And so what ends up happening? This caused problems down the road for generations to come. During the time of Esther, a man named Haman came dangerously close to wiping out the Jewish people, and Haman was a descendant of that king. The king Who Saul allowed to live, King Agag, according to Esther chapter 3, verse 1. You see, here's the thing. We are told to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are told to murder our flesh, if you know what I mean, right? That sin nature. But if you don't kill it, eventually it's going to kill you. And that's what happened with Saul. Here Saul dies, he's defeated, and then. As a leader, what ends up happening is then, therefore, the people are defeated. You guys know that, right? I mean, if it was just you, if it was just me, it probably wouldn't, I don't know, to me, my heart goes out to all of you here, but you guys know that this affects so many people, huh? It really does. You know, it's kind of like a a baseball team, you know? Um, How many of you guys, you heard about the Kansas City Royals the other day, and now you're Kansas City Royal fans? Right. No, I'm just joking. You guys aren't, huh? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, but um you know, they're down by four going into the eighth inning, it's seven to three, but they don't give up. They score three in the eighth, another in the ninth, and then it goes into extra innings and top of the twelfth, um, the A's score one and so they think the game's over, but the bottom of the twelfth, what ends up happening is the Tennessee Royals come back. They score a run, and then they got a guy in scoring position, and up comes the batter. What does he do? Boom. Game-winning hit. That guy won it for his team. We can do that. The Lord, we're a team. Don't get me wrong. We do this together. But what a difference it makes when individuals, one by one, start doing their part with all their heart. They start living the life that we're really called to live. It's a simple truth. And when we do, it makes a difference. Someone steps up to bat or maybe they're on the mound and they lead their team to victory. See, that's what God wants for us. we see this about Saul and we see the tragic end and it's crazy when you see that he was killed by an Amalekite. But then look at verse 8. It says, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboah. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. And then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon, this was God's anointed king who got his head cut off, and then they put his head in the temple of demons. And you guys know, you know what happened. We're going to see later some of the details of his life, but this happens sometimes. Notice what we read next in verse 13. So Saul died. I'm sorry, verse 11. And when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. And they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted fasted seven days. So why did these guys do this? Why did they take their bodies and bury them in their land? And the reason we know that they did this is because way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, when it all started, the Ammonites came to these guys. Okay, and this is what they told them. They told these guys of Jabesh Gilead, they said, "Give us your right eye, and then we'll make a covenant with you." Okay, because they're going to get beat up, right? They're going to get killed. And so the guys of Jabesh Gilead. They're like, "Well, let me think about it. <laughs> let me ask and see if I can maybe rally up some support, you know." And and apparently the ammonites thought there's there's no hope. We'll give these guys a week. They can't defeat us. And so what ends up happening is they tell Saul. Now this is the very beginning. He had never done anything before. He had been anointed king, but he had never got a victory before. And they came and they told Saul, they said, Saul, these Ammonites have come to us, and they say that they'll make a covenant with us, but we have to give them our right eye. And so you know what Saul did? The, the Holy Spirit filled him, and he got angry. He got angry with that, and he cut up an animal, and he sent all the tri- he sent the oxen to all the different tribes of Israel, and he said, you guys come or I'm going to do this to you. And do this to your animals. And so 300,000 soldiers came, and they had some from Judah. And what did they do? They came, and Saul led them to a glorious victory over the Ammonites. He gave the men, the inhabitants of Jebesh Gilead, that beautiful victory. And, and so here they are now, and, and they take the bodies and they give them a decent burial. That's very important in Jewish culture. But what's the Lord saying? He's saying, you know, to me, life lessons murder the flesh, or it will murder you. And he's saying, look what I can do with your life. Look at the type of victory that God gave to Saul. You know, we all have that potential to be a hero. But then like what one guy said, we also have the potential to be a zero, if you know what I mean. It's in all of us. The question is, which will we choose to be? Saul chose to be faithfully disobedient, and so his life ended fatally demonic. Saul lost everything, and he really is a lesson to us all. You know, one man said this, one of the saddest experiences that can come to a human being is to awaken gray-haired and wrinkled near the close of an unproductive life to the fact that all through the years they've only been using a small part of their heart. Don't ever wake up like that one day. Go all in. Go all in for Christ. Shakespeare said, We know what we are, but we know not what we may be. And yeah, that might be bad, but you want to know something that also might be good. God can take us. God can use our life. I pray that God would take his word that we've covered this evening at this juncture of our lives, wherever we are, so that we might be all that God calls us to be. Notice there in verse 13, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not, notice it's so simple, He did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, God, killed him and turned the kingdom over to the son of David, the son of Jesse. And so, you know, let me just close by by saying this. The Bible is so important. I believe, like I, I prayed when we started, that the truth sets us free I believe that the truth sanctifies us. And when you read John 17:17, 17, 17, Jesus said that His Word is truth. God shows you how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be a Christian, how to be a son, how to be a servant, how to be everything and anything that He's called you to be. It's all in the Bible. And all we have to do is what? We have to be obedient to His Word. One more poem. I'm sorry, you guys. I like poems. Let me close with this. Not how did he die, but how did he live. Not what did he gain, but how did he give. These are the merits to measure the worth of a man as a man, regardless of birth. Not what was his station, but had he a heart? And how did he live his God-given